And welcome to this week's episode of Making It in Asheville. This is your local podcast where we interview Asheville makers, artists, entrepreneurs, community leaders. We ask them what they are making and how they are making it in Asheville. Podcast started in 2019 when my wife and I moved to town. We had no idea how we were going to make it in Asheville. So we thought we'd ask some people what they're doing. And it's been an absolute thrill ride. Today, we're being joined by Josh Dorfman, the CEO, founder, entrepreneur behind Simbly, but not just Simbly. It's been a very long, very exciting career in what I'll call media, specifically uh, sustainable and sustainability and green media. We will ask as many questions as he'll allow about his story and what brought him to Asheville. We have a seemingly a similar past, Asheville by way of Brooklyn, at least at some point. Um, and so without further ado, Josh, please introduce yourself and, and give us a, a, a moment of your own tweetable introduction. Ah, uh, Well, Tony, first of all, wonderful to be here. And uh, congrats on what you're doing with the podcast. I think it's fantastic. Uh, yeah, I've had a great run here in Asheville. I've, we've been here for about seven years. Um, I am the co-founder and CEO of Simbly. This is a modern, sustainable furniture company that we are making uh, from here, just down the road, 20 minutes down the road in Hendersonville, with our headquarters here. And I have worked in entrepreneurship here. I was the director of Venture Asheville for a number of years. I built our angel investor group, Asheville Angels. Um, worked at the Collider, working on climate entrepreneurship and innovation here in town. So, um, yeah, there's just wow. this is such a great place to be for creative entrepreneurship and accessing resources and pursuing those kinds of visions. So, um, it's been great and really enjoyable. Well, thank you for making time to have this conversation. We met, I want to say, through Venture Asheville. There, I don't exactly remember. We we had coffee at uh, at Waterbird, which I think both of our neighborhood spots, uh, I think R.I.P. Waterbird at this point. But uh, and and we like got connected and acquainted back when people got coffee, uh, which seems like a lifetime ago. And uh, I was absolutely floored by how much you've touched. And so just in Asheville. Uh, I heard perhaps three of the most important like small business. I use startups and small business differently, but at least small business or startup like, uh, I don't know, um, resources, Venture Asheville, the Collider is, is, if I'm not mistaken, focused on green sustainability efforts and co-working, uh, and then the Asheville Angels. And so that's incredible to me, but it started so much earlier than that, according to my understanding of your story. And so I, I would love to, before we jump back, which I'm very excited to do, I want to hear just a couple more uh, minutes worth, let's say, of a conversation about Simbly, because I am looking at the Simbly homepage, beautiful website, beautiful product. Give, me, give us a, a high level. What's going on at Simbly today? Uh, how long have you been in the business? W what's exciting? What's a mile marker that's happened recently? Yeah. So Simbly is a, a business that I started conceiving three or four years ago. 
when I was looking at, you know, broadly at the consumer marketplace and sustainable or eco-friendly products, which has been a, a passion of mine uh, for a, a number of years and certainly some other businesses I've started or been involved in. And I started thinking that there was really some white space, this kind of opportunity in sustainable furniture, because there's just not a lot of really great product in the, there's just not a lot of product available in the market. Yeah. Um, and I thought, you know, wouldn't it be fascinating to pursue a business where you could focus on sustainability as core to the mission, really beautiful design. In our case, we focus on modern design, um, making it in America and doing it at a fair, attractive price. If you could bring those four things together, right? Sustainability, great design, made in America, fair price, then, which is so hard to do, so hard to pull all of those off. You can pull off two pretty easily, maybe three, but bringing that whole value proposition together seemed like a, a great challenge and would be satisfying in its own right if we could make it happen. Mm -hmm. And so I have a designer who I've worked with in the past uh, who uh, essentially formed the kind of creation of the Simbly aesthetic. Um, we started, we reconnected a few years ago and said, hey, these are our values. Why don't we give us a shot? And and I started realizing, like, I'm in furniture country. Mm. We're in this part of the world that has a long history and heritage of actually being the furniture-making capital of the world. A lot of that production had gone overseas, and I thought it would be really cool to be part of a story about revitalizing that side of our economy uh, around manufacturing, around craftsmanship, particularly around furniture, and to create those kinds of economic opportunities for people who might be involved in what we do. And so that's a little bit of the backstory. Where we are today, we have a kind of our capsule collection in market. It's been picked up by West Elm. And so I was we- just, I was gonna drop that if you didn't, because when I Googled you, I saw a West Elm ad, which I was like, oh, this is huge. How long have you been in West Elm? Sorry for uh, interjecting. Not at all. We probably started that relationship about a year and a half ago Exciting. and it's developed over time it's been fantastic for us mm. they found us and what i'm describing to you is kind of that value proposition the four things um it resonated with their buyers mm. and so they found us kind of early as we were still trying to figure out our brand we'd done our first kind of photo shoot we didn't really feel like it lined up with what we wanted our kind of visual and aesthetic and how we wanted to be represented but so it was still rough but yet the the what we are attempting to do in america resonated with them and we started exploring a partnership and so we sell today we designed our company to be direct to consumer i mean which is this trend that has taken off wildly and so that's also how we can achieve our more uh, attractive price points because we don't bake in all the wholesale costs and all our other things that eventually make the price just much more expensive for an end consumer um but we were able, even within that, to work with West Elm to make the relationship work for them and for us. And it's, it's just been, from a credibility point of view, from an access to sales point of view, uh, it's just been uh, really wonderful. In the year 2014, I cut my hand open trying to do something fancy and open a bottle of beer. That little cut happened 3 o'clock in the morning. My only option was to go to a hospital in New York City. 
That quick trip got me four or five stitches. Those five stitches cost me about $1,000 each, maybe a little more. I paid off that hospital visit for years, and it made me never want to go to a hospital again. And so when we heard about Range Urgent Care in Asheville, who has a very convenient uh, model, one that says, show up anytime, book ahead of time, and you will be seen when we say that we would see you. Uh, they do virtual visits, they do home visits, and they have a pricing model that is consistent, 149 every time you come in. And you can go in for anything that's not proper emergency care, 149 every single visit for x-rays, for stitches, for uh, a checkup. You can you can go and not have to mortgage your home to pay off the treatment. How about that? Sounds amazing. Where would you go to learn more about this? You'd go to makingitinashville.com forward slash range. We have links to a number of range subscription options. I subscribe to a single person's uh, subscription plan. It costs me $30 a month and I love it. It gives me peace of mind. And I know that I will not go bankrupt if I ever cut my hand in the middle of the night trying to open up a bottle of beer. Rangeurgentcare.com or makingitinashville.com forward slash range to learn more about these plans. Wow. Wow. Okay. So that is, that's, I mean, that, that, that seems like a, if I'm attempting to build a product, it seems like the end goal would be get into West Elm <laughs> or like get into a place like a West Elm. What I'm hearing is that a lot of what has happened or is happening in Simbly was by design. Like it, it seemed like you you were very, uh, I'll call it pragmatic or like uh, thoughtful in identifying a market, identifying a, uh, a space in a market, identifying brand values and a concept early, as opposed to maybe finding it backwards, saying like, I really want to build a table or I really want to build a thing. And then what could the brand be? What could we stand for? What might, uh, what might the rest of the collection feel like? Uh, and I think that is meaningful. I don't know if everyone uh, approaches problems in that way. I'm not sure that uh, maybe it just sounds do, but (laughs) no, I, it's, uh, it is, it is intentional and it's, it's intentional because I've learned some hard lessons because I, as a mission driven entrepreneur, as someone who cares deeply about sustainability, I have pursued projects where it was just like, I'm just going to do this because I want to make, you know, organic cotton clothing, or I just want to like, these are my values. And I have learned, and you know, in those moments where I, I am asked, like uh, just the other day, I was I was doing a podcast for some students, and they were saying, well, you know, what what would you tell us if we were starting a business and thinking? I would say, make sure that as much as you care about the planet or sustainability or the environment, whatever you are attempting to build and sell, that there is a market for it, that there is, dem- and and it's almost like you have to say. You know, because people are so passionate today and so many entrepreneurs are so passionate, particularly around, you know, a social mission or environmental mission. I feel like the discipline is to say, okay, remove all your values from the product itself and you're just left with the product for a minute. Would somebody still want to buy that product? Right. Like, is it on its face, you know, compelling? Mm. Because if it is, and then you can infuse it with all of the values, you'll make it that much more 
desirable for consumers, but it has to be able to stand alone without that to really succeed. Because the thing about doing this type of entrepreneurship, what you know, social driven or environmental driven, when it's values driven, and you're embedding, like in our case, so we use Forest Stewardship Council certified wood, FSC certified wood. So we know that our wood has come from a, a forest that is sustainably managed with all sorts of benefits to um, you know, indigenous people who rely on forests for their living, living. I mean, for ecosystems. Um, but I know once I embed that value into my product, that environmental value into the product itself, into the material, into the finishes, the more we can sell and ramp up our business, the more good we're doing for the planet because we're taking business away from conventional choices that don't consider those kinds of things, right? So that's the key. Like growth mm -hmm. is still the key, but you just have to make sure that a, that someone's going to love your product for for what it is. Yeah, and, uh, a metaphor that's coming to mind for me is the idea of, you know, that is that's salt on a meal. Like if you if added appropriately, it makes it fantastic. But it's not the meal, right? Like it, the 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 design, the product is at the end of the day what the consumer is buying. You lean too heavy into the salt, and you're pushing people away you hit it just right and it it makes for a tasty dish what you're i think finished with is something that's even perhaps even bigger than that which which throws the salt metaphor away which says that the global like the the macro good that you get to do by out competing uh you know a traditional business or someone that's not using as much care as you are in uh how you source products is is like I don't know the the dessert. <laughs> it's the cherry on top. It's it's something that um, uh, I don't even I don't know how many businesses can say that that is part of what what they're out you know playing for is well, the, is the big change. I would say Tony, there there are increasingly a lot of businesses after creating that tasty dish, mm. right? Mm. The global tasty dish. And it's uh, it's a movement that's grown for years. I mean, you can go back and and you know the same you know the companies that were most inspiring kind of at the beginning or sort of whenever well the beginning. Yeah. I th you know I, when I think about for me the beginning of like consumer facing sustainable businesses, you look at Patagonia, you look at Whole Foods, you look at Seventh Generation, and then it's been filled in by mm. by tons of interesting businesses from a Tesla with an electric car to these really cool footwear companies like Allbirds. I see, mm. you know, the cool kids in Asheville walking around with their Allbirds all made from wool and natural materials or mm -hmm. a company called Rothy's, which is 3D printing really beautiful shoes uh, for women using recycled materials and super cool, you know, and, and a, this, a lot of these companies are now valued at over a billion dollars. Yeah. Um, and it's a movement and it's, and it's growing. Um, so we're not... We, and we are part of that. And that's what's yeah. exciting, too. I have more colleagues, more peers, more folks doing really wonderful things. And and so this might be a perfect opportunity. When would you, I mean, Patagonia, that's like 60s or something, right? So maybe somewhere between the 60s and 90s. Like when, when would you say that this movement hopped on your radar? And then this might be the perfect way to, to kind of recap your story to Asheville, which I find absolutely fascinating. The media mogul and the background that you have uh, is seeming to me, it's like crazy. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by it. 
well, one, thank you. Two, they're, yeah, they're, it's hard, I suppose, to separate those two things out. So I'll mm-hmm. kind of start answering your question and then just stop me or yeah, redirect no, we'll freestyle. Right? Perfect. But I, I first started thinking about the possibilities around uh, sustainable lifestyles and consumer product in uh, business school in the late 90s. Mm. And, um, you know, I'd spent a couple of years in China uh, prior to that teaching English and then traveling around China selling bike locks for a company called Kryptonite that made like sure. at least a time, you know, Kryptonite yeah, bike I locks. Have the, yeah. I have the forget about it lock, the New York uh, unbreakable. Yeah, right. Air Can't be done. <laughs> Can't be done. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it's a story in itself, but my sort of environmental awakening and epiphany came from the time I spent in China, which wasn't my intention, but I just started seeing so much infrastructure being built as the country was developing so fast with tunnels and highways and bridges. And, you know, you could see the writing on the wall eventually, like, holy cow, there's going to be a billion people here driving cars. And, you know, some light bulbs started going off like that's probably problematic Mm -hmm. um, unless we figure some how to do things sustainably. But when I was in business school, I was in this entrepreneurship class and I was working on this project um, and doing a lot of market research. It wasn't sustainable lifestyle, but it was the same set of research uh, around something that's called LOHAS, Lifestyles of Health and Sustainability. And it's essentially this idea that there's actually a massive market um, and tons and tons of people, millions of people interested in shopping their values around the environment and social responsibility. yeah, there's questions always of will they pay more for such products? I tend to always doubt that research when the answer is yes, because I've never seen it borne out in practice. But nonetheless, this increasing consciousness amongst consumers, right? And so I was working on this totally random business at the time that I was calling Brain Charge, which was like this idea that there would be like a mental fitness gym that you would go to, or maybe like embed a mental fitness gym in the like the physical workout gym. So you'd yeah. like go in there and like, play mind games or like get hooked and up. Is it to... still like early 2000s because yeah, it's not it's an app early, yet? Yeah, you're yeah, not yeah, saying pre it's an app. Pre-apps, pre like, you know, pre like, yeah, any sort of like, uh, you know, iPhone ecosystem of apps. It was just like me and like, you know, and I was getting like a global MBA and all these people who were just like, you know, even the professors were like, nah, we don't know. <laughs> you know, that like, I don't know if that's a good idea. And I was like, no, no, it is because people you were like twenty really years early, like, yeah. I mean, and you got baby boomers, right? And they're gonna yeah. like want to like stay like sharp. And I still actually think it's a good idea. My dad actually just like found the the business plan in in his basement and like gave it to me. I was like, yeah, this I think this this could work still. But um, it triggered me into this like notion of like, hey, there's a market potentially for you know products and ser- services and solutions that that uh, embody these values. And so that's kind of where the spark was triggered. It took a whole bunch of years for me to figure out how to kind of build some businesses around that and put it into practice. Sure. And and I'm going to throw out a buzzword and maybe not a buzzword, but a a important couple words from the story. And I, I'm thinking the lazy environmentalist. Yeah. So at some point that starts. When does that start? So that started 2005. So the, the business that I ended up starting, taking this research, really thinking about how to, you know, what role I was going to play around sustainability, which was really important to me. And, you know, I kicked around a whole bunch of different jobs, went through the dot-com boom bust. Um, 
But eventually I decided I was actually going to start a what became my first modern sustainable furniture company. It was just I was on the retail side. I wasn't actually a manufacturer like we are today. And I was building that company. And my first employee on her last day working for me, um, I'd started the business in Washington, D.C. I'd actually gone into a Ph.D. program at, at George Washington University in political science for like maybe two thirds of a year until I was like, no way can I spend my life doing this. And I was like, I'll just start an eco-friendly consumer products company because that seems like a cool thing to do. And um, so I did, and it was really focused on design, but I decided to go to Brooklyn because that's where, as you mentioned, so I moved up to Greenpoint because that's where a number of these really interesting designers were located, right? Mm. That were doing furniture. And like there was one company called Scrap Pile that was taking um, um, pianos from, um, well, broken pianos or broken parts or whatever from like Steinway mm. pianos, like their factory, and like yeah. turning them into like like gorgeous furniture. It was like wow. really amazing. And anyway, so um, so she was not making this trip with me up to Brooklyn. This was her last day working for me, Lucy, and and she's she has heard me tell the story, but she kind of laid into me on this last day, like when I wasn't her boss anymore. Um, and she could just speak her mind for me being a terrible environmentalist in my personal life. And, you know, she's like, you're always in the shower. We were building this little e-commerce company out of my apartment. You know, you barely recycle. Like, you're the worst. And um, and yet your whole life is dedicated to helping consumers shift their behavior. You're just a giant hypocrite. I hate you. And, like, you know, <laughs> I'm out of here. And uh, so... I took that to heart, and not only did I take it to heart, I had come across, um, uh, quick aside, but I heard Michael Crook, the CEO of Patagonia in 2004 at a conference, give a speech. It was actually, I mentioned LOHAS. It was a LOHAS conference, this lifestyle wow. help, right? Where he was, he was the luncheon keynote speaker, and it's Patagonia, and it's cool, but it's lunch, so people are eating and chit-chatting and not really paying too much attention to him. But then he says, last year, the recycled content in our fleeces was like 80%. This year we're at 60%. We are failing as a company. And mm. you can imagine like every knife and fork drops and everyone turns are like, what is, what is Michael talking about? You know, Patagonia's failing. And his point was, we're still really good, but our consumers, our customers expect honesty from us mm. and transparency from us. And we hold ourselves to a certain standard. And the insight that I had was like, the more honest you like Patagonia is and the more transparent, even if they're not perfect, like the more their consumers love them, like the more they turn like customers into evangelists, right? Because mm. people know that sustainability is hard. Sure. They know it in their own lives, right? And so I thought I'll just take that to heart with my little company. And I wrote this blog called The Lazy Environmentalist. I was like, here's the deal. I take really long showers. I do my best thinking in the shower. I'm not going to change. I know I'm using water. I know I'm using energy to heat that water. And like, I don't feel great about that, but yet I'm not changing. And so what I need is a super duper low flow shower head with absolutely incredible you know, pressure so I can stay in that shower as long as I need to, to do my best thinking, but vastly reduce my impact on the environment. And I need that to happen in every aspect of my life. And if it does, and if you industry figure that out for me, I'll buy those things if I can afford them, right? Yeah. Like I care, I'm lazy, I'm a lazy environmentalist. And so the, the, I just put it out there, I was like, I, this, is, this is how I wanna lead my company, I'm gonna be very authentic. 
And two weeks later, a, a radio producer calls me up and uh, for an online radio station. I can't even remember now. He's like, this is like really interesting. Do you want to have a radio show? And I thought, yeah, I do, because I have like such a slim marketing budget. If you're going to give me a chance to like, like, absolutely, I want to have a radio show. We'll call it the Lazy Environmentalist. And I'll go out and find all those folks in industry who are doing interesting stuff. A lot of them I know already through my company. Um, But we'll just have this really interesting conversation about how this is developing. And it was developing, and I can't explain why, except in the early 2000s, you know, Al Gore's movie came out in 2006, An Inconvenient Truth. But before that, you had all of these people in there, I I would say, or at least what I was seeing, folks in their late 20s, early 30s, designers, craftspeople, some business people who had apprenticed enough or gotten enough experience where they were uh, dangerous, um, but were deciding that they didn't want to do things the way things, you know, they'd been done in the past and that their values were increasingly about the environment. They were going to start building products for themselves and their friends. And you saw this happen from Austin to Portland to Denver to Atlanta, up in Brooklyn. I mean, Kansas City, everywhere. It was incredibly exciting. And I never still to this day haven't figured out why. But those became my guests. And within a year, the show moved to Sirius Satellite Radio once a week. A year after that, it was live every day. And um, became a TV show that I ended up hosting and books I wrote and went on the Martha Stewart show for Earth Day and had like this incredible experience that I could never have anticipated. Um, yeah. yeah, there you so go. That, what a thrill ride. How, how many years did, in some form or another, did the Lazy Environmentalist uh, in that incarnation exist? In that okay. incarnation, it was like a rocket ship five years five where years. it went from like a blog entry to an award-winning TV show on Sundance Channel. Wow. Wow. wow, wow. And this is like, I feel like you might have been, what, like, I don't know, five years ahead of Instagram. Like there's a chance that if this happened in a different sequence, you'd have a million Instagram followers from, <laughs> you know, like the, the lazy environmentalist uh this tv show like I, I i my wife and i have been watching these like home makeover shows and i'm like how do these people get the show like wh- and then you look at their instagram and it's 26 million people follow i'm like is that because of tlc or is it like do they have a million and then tlc paid for it and then now all of a sudden they're at 26 million and so uh what an inc- like before influencers were a thing though they existed certainly it seems that you were the environmentalist the green space product influencer perhaps like the yeah, media personality one of a you know yeah. not a large group i would say i mean oh. of course some other really really awesome uh talented folks and a number of them actually ended up having tv shows we were sort of stacked one after the other on sundance channel for a while which was a really great place to be but for me you know, what I wanted and the reason why I pursued it was because, you know, again, I mentioned like I was bootstrapping this this business that is a huge passion of mine around design and sustainability. And so, you know, but the opportunities were coming in media and I just thought, you know, I'm going to try to build this company like a Richard Branson model, right? Like mm. a virgin who will like jump out of an airplane or do these crazy stunts or whatever he could do himself to get attention, which would then kind of be 
transferred onto his company. And and, and were were products moving when the the bigger you got, the bigger the show got, the bigger the media arm got. Were you selling product? You know, it didn't. We grew Vivavi. So my first company was called Vivavi, like Viva V, Live Life. So it was oh, wow. Vivavi.com. Um, and we grew. We ended up having um, a couple of showrooms in New York City. One actually was my apartment that I lived in because I'm, um, you know, was like I will like literally live in this business 24/7. That was how I opened my first showroom because I couldn't afford rent and an apartment, so I just wow. made them the same thing. But we ended up opening another one um, in Lower Manhattan. Um, but that synergy wasn't probably as tight as I would have hoped it would have been. It was really like the lazy environmentals was just moving on its own trajectory. Mm-hmm. Um, and I spent four years, like kind of like you said, I was a national spokesperson for Brita. They had created this campaign called Filter for Good. You take a Brita water pitcher, you had like an algae and reusable bottle. And um, so I would, you know, that I did a lot of TV and radio, you know, s- stuff for that, which was always interesting because I was usually, you know, like sent off to places where you know they really didn't want to hear from an environmentalist, which is a lot of what I enjoy. And I can remember being on this radio show, like in in um, I think it was in Knoxville, and I can hear the hosts is like a morning show, and they're like, "Oh, we're going to break." And in the break, they're like, "You know what's coming on next, Bobby?" And he's like, "Oh man, we got this environmentalist from New York coming on," you know, and. And um, and I, of course, can hear all this. And so they're like, OK, we're back. And Josh Dorfman, the lazy environmentalist, you're not here to make us feel bad, are you? Know, are you, Josh? And, and I loved those moments because I, you know, just started talking to them about college football because I loved mm. college football. And I was like, oh, man, UT had a tough year, but I can't remember their strong safety, but he was a number. He was a first round draft pick. And so I'm like chatting them up around college football. And then they're like, oh, yeah, you're here to talk to us like you're an environmental. What, what do you got for us, Josh? And so by that point, like we Guard were good. Was down right? a little bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we're like, we're good. It happened once. I'll just tell you, I was with. Um, so through Brit, I went on to this show with this uh, on Fox News with this host, uh, Dr. Manny, who's like their doctor. And it's like, get healthy with Dr. Manny. And this was in New York. You know, this was in the New York City studio. And um I've got like my props on a table, like a Brita pitcher and these other things, how to get healthy and go green. And, and I'm sitting there and, and it's nerve wracking for me. I mean, it's still like, I, you know, I have an MBA, I'm a startup guy and yet I'm like doing the stuff, you know, and it's not like by nature what I'm, you know, kind of wired to do. And so, uh, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. And finally, Dr. Manny comes out, he's you know, makeup on, sits down across from me and they're like, okay, 60 seconds to live or air or whatever. And he leans over and he doesn't say hello. He just says, just so you know, I don't believe in global warming. Right? Oh, God. <laughs> and, and I was like, you know, like, don't let, panic. This, don't let this throw you off. But yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and he kind of leans back. And I'm like, yeah. oh, you know. I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? What am I going to say? So I don't know how it came out, but the but the only thing I could think to say since we were in New York, I was like, do you believe in the Yankees? And he was just like, it like you know, thought about it, like put his head down and like finally like, they're like 10 seconds. He lifted his head up. He's like, I do. I believe in the Yankees. And I was like, all right, well, we've got some common ground here. And uh, and it was fine. But that was part of the challenge that I've always loved is like really trying to relate and get people to kind of um, buy into something or become a little more supportive of an environmental cause that might not be their you know predisposition before I show up. Wow. 
seems like a, a master class in uh, I'll say bridge building or some sort of uh, like hostage negotiating where the idea <laughs> is a hostage, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, wow, there's, there's something I'm going to call that like, well, I mean, common ground, there has to be some sort of already uh, a phrase for it, but it reminds me of uh, they said Ben Franklin used to do a thing where if someone clearly didn't like him, he would ask a favor of them, like to borrow a book. Like, oh, I know that you have this like incredible library. That you, I, there's a book that you have that I've not been able to find anywhere else. Can I borrow this book? And like he had already read the book. Like he, he found the book. He has the book. He, it's in his library. But he asked his request and the person says, uh, yeah, sure. And so lets a week go by, goes, goes back, hands the book back. Thank you so much. That was so generous. You're, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Wonderful book. And now this other guy's like, I, you know, Ben Franklin's pretty cool. Like, I like him. Right, He's right. Like, what a guy. You know, like, <laughs> and, and so there's some sort of like uh, Jedi mind trick maneuver yeah, there uh, yeah. that ties you to Ben Franklin in my mind. Yeah. Oh, that, well, that's a, a beautiful relationship. So <laughs> I, I appreciate that. So you navigate this, uh, this world where you're thrust into a media personality type role. You're a spokesperson. You have a television show. You all these things. At, at some point, um, if I'm trying to pay attention to the dates, it's got to be around 2010. Uh, at, and that's, I don't know, maybe four years before you moved to Asheville, uh, making up the timeline. What happens then? Do you pull back? You're like, I'm, I'm enough with the traveling, enough with the radio shows. Uh, what happens next? Yeah. Well, we did two seasons of this TV show. So, so just to kind of put the, the moment in context, uh, we'd gone through the, the financial recession in 2008 mm -hmm. that hit our furniture business incredibly hard. The, I mentioned this, uh, we, we opened a second, um, showroom kind of retail space. It was actually in lower Manhattan, this building called the river house, which was like one of these first luxury green condo buildings. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, and I was like, oh my gosh, we're brilliant. Like here's people who are in a green condo. They want to do this. We, all our furniture's here. And it was great. I mean, it was a really, really, um, it was a smart marketing move to get in there. And I had a really good marketing director, this guy, Aaron Kresner at the time who, who, uh, made it happen. We had like Leonardo DiCaprio come into our showroom and, wow. yeah. um, with his mom who does shopping for him, you know, buys his furniture. So, you know, like there, there's that. Um, but once the recession hit a lot of our, um, our pipeline dried up. Mm -hmm. And so I, I was, I, I ended up shutting Vivavi and focusing more on lazy environmentalist. And then after two seasons of that TV show, the, the moment had shifted, um, like green media, like at that point had really saturated so much of the media landscape or whether, you know, from magazines to TV. And so Certainly at that, I think producers probably had the like most like, quote unquote, green fatigue. Yeah, they were I was going like, to use that word if that wasn't a thing. It seems yeah. like Zoom fatigue, green fatigue a green decade fatigue, ago. Yeah. And so I would, you know, I went and pitched a few other ideas. I had access at that point to go talk to some other networks. But no one, the moment had clearly shifted. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the storytelling around sustainability and the environment kind of, it, it receded. I felt, and I got some advice from um, some friends in, in kind of the sustainability industry, that I wanted to go back into the startup world. 
Mm-hmm. And one of my, I, I honestly, like I was, I certainly, I was burned out from an entrepreneurial point of view. Mm-hmm. I was just burned out. I mean, I, I had lost, I, I was running two businesses at the same time, a media company and a, and a furniture products company. And I was tired, you know, I mean, I just didn't have ideas for what I wanted to build next. And someone said, hey, go work for a startup, um, take your skills there and learn and then mm-hmm. see. So I ended up, that's when I, I went out to San Francisco and ran marketing for a startup called Good Guide, which was fascinating in its own right. It was a, um, a fast company, 50 startup, a tech crunch, 50 startup. They was it based, but it was a team of scientists from UC Berkeley. So really nerdy who were trying to drive this notion of like radical transparency in consumer products that you would be able to go to a store or go anywhere and understand everything in the, this product that you were buying. Um, cause ingredients are like, you know, hard, like a foreign language. Right. And so for its health environment and ethical performance. And so they were pulling in all this data to figure this out and it was really cool. And I came in to be kind of a translator in a, mm. in a sense to kind of, seems like kind it would be fig- important. Yeah. How are we going to brand this company and take all this awesome data, which was packaged well, mm. um, you know, you had a you had an app with a bar that would scan a barcode, and you could get a score and compare like your band roll on to your right guard, and like it was cool. But yet, it wasn't. Um, we still had to think about how do you make this? How do you take all this data and what we're doing and make it like interesting to people, and then like valuable to people, mm-hmm. and then actionable? So I'm actually mm-hmm. going to do something right. And what was cool was we started thinking, and the founders also was awesome. This guy Dara O'Rourke, who's um, again this UC Berkeley professor, he's doing a lot of work today there and at Amazon on their sustainability efforts. You know, Dara, we'd create these videos where we thought, man, what if we had these counterintuitives, like these things that people don't know about their products that could be less sort of interesting and compelling. And so we would make these videos of like Dara, like this professor sitting at his desk, and all he would have in front of him was like a can of Coke and like a carton of Dan and yogurt. And he'd sit there and we'd kind of pour him out and he'd be talking and he, you know, and his point was like, you know, which one has more, here's Dan and yogurt, the health food, here's Coca-Cola, like this like sugar water that's unhealthy. And like, you're sort of seeing the stuff like kind of cascading across his desk. And his whole point was eventually like, but the yogurt has more sugar in it than the Coca-Cola, right? Like, and so we were like, if we can come up with these little counterintuitives and like kind of create these sort of like viral videos, maybe we can bring this thing to life. And what was funny was, um, you know, we were backed by some really good venture ca- uh, capital firms like NEA, Dripper, Fisher, Jervinson. Um, and one of them invited us or in- invited. He was like, Josh, you will come and like present to like our VC community and our limited partners on what you're doing on marketing on Facebook and what tech you're using on like Facebook and in social media, right? So this is now 10 years ago, right? And I've got two other heads of marketing from our portfolio companies. It's like you three, I want you to present and like, you know, in two days. So I show up, I'm on this dais and these like two marketers go first. I know them, they're talented and they're like, well, we're using this like tech thing to like grab emails and it's like a giveaway and this thing and we've got this plugin and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, okay, Josh, your turn, you know? And basically I'm like, yeah, we've got this video camera. 
<laughs> you know, and like we're making like kind of funny, quirky videos that we think are shareable and like are, you know, and like the room is like dead silent, you know, and I'm like, oh, God, this, you know, I don't know what my future looks like here. But this other guy who I didn't know, sort of shame on me, maybe who like the room certainly knew who the guest was like the guest of honor um, on this panel was this guy. uh um Andrew Bosworth, who's like um, Boz, like the VP of engineering at Facebook and has been yep. there forever. Like, so they invited Boz and like the room's totally silent. You sort of hear some shifting the seats and he's like looking at me and he's like, that's exactly how you should be using our platform, you know, uh, which you would get as a marketer. Right. And it's not he's like, it's not about bells and whistles and gimmicks. It's about that human connectivity and story. And, and so, you know, then especially everyone, then. Like, especially then when when they were in, you know, early 2000s or or 2010, even uh, they were doing everything to multiply and magnify things that were already working uh, as as opposed to I mean, there's still that today, but there's there's more of you do kind of need to know the X's and O's of an algorithm and have some sort of sophistication or, or it behooves you to understand uh, the analytics and the numbers and the content is also important. But if you're, if you're looking for virality and content, uh, Facebook is not the platform anymore. Yeah. I mean, that's completely shifted but it was very different then. Like it you're was. saying, right? Oh my so goodness, if you yeah. could get shareable content. Um, yeah. And so it was just, you know, it was like, I guess that was an approach kind of born out of like the lazy environmentalists and storytelling yeah. and, you know, and trying to really find that connection. Yeah. And I, I I love that. And I so your your tale brings you to San Francisco. I believe at some point you find your way to Summit, New Jersey, which is a stone's throw from where I I grew up. So how did you get from the West Coast back east? Uh, so while I was at Good Guide, this also just it was it was a great opportunity. Um, Amazon had actually bought a company best known for its biggest website, Diapers dot com. Oh, yeah, and, if, yeah. and so diapers.com delivering everything but the baby um, was Great. grew incredibly fast. The company behind it launched another e-commerce business, soap.com, like a kind of a CVS type um, you know product offering. These businesses were growing really fast, and um, Amazon ended up buying them um, for a lot of money. And the the founders of diapers.com realized like they had this sort of rocket ship business. So it, it certainly, it did well from an investor kind of venture capital success story mm-hmm. from a retail uh, story. They realized they were missing out on some potential because you've got all these moms coming to diapers.com to buy, you know, everything for their baby and then young child. But once a kid's three years old, you're not really shopping on diapers.com anymore. Right? Like, and a lot of these customers were buying Seventh Generation, Burt's Bees, uh, you know, these kind of natural organic brands. And so I was recruited to come in and build uh, what we thought would, uh, what, what at the time was the largest kind of natural and organics e-commerce site in existence, wow. um, where we thought if we can then kind of capture these moms as their childs are aging into these, you know, kind of, um, you know, aspirational products and natural organic products, then we can extend their lifetime value as customers and we can create a really wonderful business. Um, so that's what I went back to New York to work on and build. And it was a really cool opportunity, kind of ground floor to like set the brand vision, 
and strategy, um, build the merchandising team, the marketing team, and bring that business to market. So yeah, I spent a couple of years working on that. What, we what called it. Called? Uh, it was called uh, Vine.com. Huh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think I've watched an interview with the the one of the founders of of diapers. If I'm not mistaken, that was largely just like an arbitrage play initially, where they would go to like BJ's and they'd go to like Sam's clubs and legitimately just like buy a pallet of diapers retail and then put them on the internet and ship them across the country to the point where they like they stopped unloading diapers at some of these places in like the tri-state area of New Jersey, New York, Connecticut to uh, like they just left them out and these guys would just take their forklift and and buy and they're like you have to stop buying and then they went direct to johnson and johnson or whatever uh yeah so that would if you're talking about arbitrage that would have been mark laurie who was one of the co-founders who ended up then launching jet.com which was bought by walmart and he'd spent a number of years as walmart's uh, head of uh us e-commerce and um fascinating fascinating guy because he always speaks that's very much how he would speak in terms of the, the the language of arbitrage but i think also um you know, I mean, and that's been written about a ton. Um, and, and, and just in case, arbitrage is the idea that uh, not everything is valued equally in all places. And so if you have a thing that is a, a dollar at Walmart and $3 online, theoretically, there's a way to make money by buying it from Walmart, selling it online. Yeah, but it was also a way to test the market because... Mm-hmm. Uh, Pampers was not willing to sell Pampers to uh, two guys in a garage with a business called 1-800-Diapers or whatever mm-hmm. it was, right? And so, yeah, you had to kind of test the market, prove the market, prove you know, prove a lot of things before you're going to get those relationships. But that is very much, um, yeah, sounds like, like Mark to talk about how are, how are we going to arbitrage this? And because I think he, his original business or one of them was baseball cards, which is all about arbitrage. Oh my goodness! And you want to talk about a product or a, a a space that has gone off the charts in 2020 and early 2021? Baseball cards are crazy town uh, in terms of the like a commodity value. Yeah. From 2019 to 2021, it doesn't even make sense. Yeah, Came I've back. heard I've heard like Gary V talking about it. And right? and the the issue love love and hate. I, no, I love Gary Vee, but I, the, the thing that I think is often missed is that someone like a Gary Vee can move the market, like, you know, and so in Hank, Hank Aaron's. Yeah. And so, in, so if he's yeah. hitting, you know, if he's hitting that platform or like, you know, TikTok, TikTok, b- businesses go to TikTok. He's also selling the the enterprise agency solution for bringing your brand to TikTok. So like it's a it's a it, it is self fulfilling because he can move a market he can he can make TikTok real he can like not alone but close and like now it's happening with uh, Clubhouse where where people c- who can create the market uh, also have a little bit of skin in the game and so when he says you know baseball cards baseball cards Pokemon cards 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 it's l- largely because two years ago he started really buying them and now he's making a ton of money as the market goes up. And I love it. And I also am envious. And I also, you know, uh, don't think everyone should, uh, there's other ways to differentiate or, or uh, I'd say get your, uh, diversify your assets. 
Yeah, well, I would say, where were you 25 years ago, Gary V, when we were stocking up on Cal Daniels rookie cards and Eric Davis rookie cards and all these guys who turned, you know, into nothing, right? <laughs> like, me and my brother have these, like, these binders still of, like, Do you still have them? These, I mean, like, if you, oh, yeah. If, if you go have... back through those binders, look out. I mean, you might might be worth looking at, like, getting an 18-year-old kid to, to intern and start posting those on eBay. It is crazy. And, right, some are absolute duds, um, but... 25 years ago, more because he was he was doing it in his teens. He was selling baseball cards. Like that's what he did before he worked in a his dad's wine shop. Is that he he sold baseball cards, and that's why he's coming back to it so aggressively. But <laughs> but we you know that's a different yeah, interview for a different day. Different so, interview, yeah. So arbitrage. I, I think that uh, there are a couple themes that I'm pulling through this winding tale. One, By the way, I, I could sorry to interrupt, yeah. but but I do have an arbitrage tale. Please, so please, uh, and w- what okay? I'm gonna, what I'm going to ask for is, uh, and, and this seems like it could be it. What are some of these le- like the the primary lessons that you can pull from your own story before Asheville? And if arbitrage is one of them, let's hear an arbitrage. Oh, no, lesson. my arb- No, no. Well, if that's the question, then I shouldn't tell you my arbitrage story. Boy, I can't <laughs> not tell the arbitrage. Story. Go, go to the arbitrage. Story. Okay. So the arbitrage story is when I finished business school in 2000, I went out to LA and I caught the tail end, mostly I would say not the dot-com boom, but the bust. I went Mm -hmm. to work for a startup um, that busted uh, relatively soon after I got out there. And I was thinking like, what am I going to do now? And probably one of the things that's come through uh, is that I was driven for so much of my life by passion. And passion probably more like certainly by heart than the head in how I would make decisions. And so I decided with my MBA and with all of my debt that I'd accumulated going to graduate school that I was going to be a screenwriter. That's my logic right there. Totally makes sense, right? And so as it happened, I was living in Santa Monica and the like the two most prevalent um sort of, well, like, what do I say, sort of professionals in LA that like you'll meet in a coffee shop, not in like an office, but in a coffee shop are like a screenwriter and a fitness guru. And it turned out, right? Yeah, or actor. Yeah. Like those three. Yeah. So like there's lots of, yeah, aspiring, (laughs) failed, you know, fitness gurus, screenwriters, you know, actors. And so the guy who lived next to me, was a fitness guru. And so we started doing some fitness equipment arbitrage where, which basically meant like he recruited me because he was a good fitness guru and salesperson that like, he's like, look, like you go out and buy up all like the Chuck Norris, you know, like fitness equipment and the yes. solo flex Bo- and Bo- flex. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Both flex, by the way, they retain their value better than BMWs. Cause I had <laughs> so many in my apartment and I even had like a, a universal gym in my kitchen. And here I've got my little computer and it's arbitrage because I'm yeah. buying it up cheap in the valley outside yeah. of LA yeah. and like putting it on eBay and trying to like flip it and support myself while I'm like, you know, trying to write screenplays. And and neither of those worked out particularly well. But I, you know, I I received, I was on the receiving end from my friends from business school who'd gone to Citibank and elsewhere and their like a corporate intervention, you know, where they're like, dude, there is a place for you in the corporate world. Like you don't need to like have a universal gym in your kitchen. Like you can like, 
come back. And I was like, you do not understand the future. You are missing out. And um, so what are the takeaways and lessons that, that, I, can, that I can offer here? So I, I look forward to it because what, what I'm hearing is, A, you've had lean seasons in your career. And I think that that probably makes for a, uh, a perspective that will allow you to season or, or uh, weather any entrepreneurial storm. You remember what it was like to have the Bowflex in your kitchen while you worked on a uh, passion project. Uh, I think that you've also uh, seen what it is to uh, build a business that kind of perhaps follows the flow and, and just goes with it and figures it out and sees his opportunity. And you've seen other people that built things perhaps very intentionally to sell or very intentionally to raise venture capital and um, see like explosive growth. And, and I'm, I'm wondering, I'll leave it to you. What all resonated, what stuck with you that you couldn't let go of as you moved down to the mountains of North Carolina? Well, that is, I appreciate what you just said. I, I, that's, um, I take that to heart. That's, um, I think what I, the, the, the piece that's kind of the, the, the theme that sort of has moved through all of those, uh, adventures, ventures, misadventures, um, is doing things that I, that I do truly believe in that, that align with my personal values. Mm. Um, and as long as I feel like it aligns with my personal values, I'm willing to try just about anything and any kind of role. And when I came down here and started working on Venture Asheville, which was not my intention, but I kind of connected with the folks at our economic development organization and our chamber of commerce and kind of agreed that that would be a, a you know, it'd be a good role and that I could bring value to it. I thought that, man, I've to, to be in a role where I can help others pursue their entrepreneurial mm. you know, dreams, passions, help this city thrive. Those are all things that align with with my values. And and I'm pr that's probably the thing I'm most in tune with is does this resonate with me at my core? And if so, and as I've gotten you know, more seasoned, let's say, I'm able to make hopefully smarter decisions about saying, does it resonate with my core? And do I think that this is a viable opportunity to go after, right? Mm -hmm. and, if the, and so that's probably the learning, you know, to sum it up. But, but yeah. certainly I've always been someone that's done things, whether they look crazy or not, that are where my passion is and where my values lie. Heard with... Uh... With passion, I'm going to leave that alone because I think that passion is, I'll call it, uh, it's, a, it's a hard word. I think that when you tell an 18-year-old, follow your passion, that is often bad advice. That don't, you don't have passion. Passion is not there yet. Passion is like born of effort, typically. So I, I'm going to leave passion alone from this conversation and, and point to your Something you mo mentioned, which I hadn't heard yet, is, is it a viable opportunity, is how I'm remembering you saying it. How, after all of the adventures, ventures, and misadventures, after all of it, how do you today assess opportunity? Well, gosh, that, yeah, that's a great question. 
You might have heard Range Urgent Care on our podcast. Husband and wife team lives right here in Asheville, building a better urgent care model. What are they doing? They're making scheduling seamless and straightforward and honest when they say they'll see you at 4 p.m. You'll be seen at 4 p.m. They make pricing straightforward as well. $149 a visit or less if you subscribe to an annual subscription, which I do. It costs me $30 a month, and I love the peace of mind. But not just that. You don't just get to go in person. You can do virtual visits uh, over your computer or over your phone, and they'll even come to you. They'll do home visits. And to me, I mean, it seems like a absolute no-brainer. You can bring they have family plans. They have business plans. To me, it's a peace of mind thing. It, it makes me feel confident and comfortable knowing that I can see range uh, in my subscription a number of times a year, and it's built into my, my plan. I will not be surprised by a crazy cost, and it is covered by most major insurance policies. So if you haven't heard of Range Urgent Care, I welcome you to check out that episode with the power couple that runs it. You can check out makingitinashville.com forward slash range, makingitinashville.com forward slash range to read more about these subscription options and get links to the range website using our link or using our discount code of making it in Asheville. We'll get you a free month in an annual subscription. Again, range urgent care you can say that we sent you or visit makingitinashville.com forward slash range. Because I imagine a mind like yours with experiences like you've had has been able to say this could be a thing or someone might have come to you. This could be a thing. And somehow or another, you're on Simbly. And it seems like you are, at least from where I'm standing, largely focused on Simbly. Uh, so how, why did it start with a hundred percent? I'm all in on this. Did you test in a, in a small way? Um, what, what, and I'm, I'm doing this to buy a little bit of time, but how are you assessing opportunity and how did that calculation or, um, energy pull you towards saying, this is going to be my thing and I'm going to leave venture Asheville if that's even how it went. Yeah, that's, it's not exactly the, how it went, which is fine. But I think to your question, um, you know, it's, it's being certainly more seasoned about being able to look at a, at a market and market behavior, um, spending more time doing market research. You know, some of the testing we did was in, you know, if we were testing Google AdWords or running some ads just to see what folks were responding to, um, you know, I taught, this go around, I you know, I would talk much more broadly with folks in industry to get a sense of where the market is um, than I did the first time I started a furniture company, which again was like, this has to happen. The world needs this. I'm going to do this. Mm. So I think it's, um, yeah, it's just, it's taking the time to really do the research. Um, but it's also, you know, I, I still, you know, I'm, I'm focused on Simbly. We're, we're trying to grow this business. I've had some other opportunities, you know, start to come up, um, you know, whether it's around consulting or, or looking at, at other kinds of ventures where uh, there may be a good fit. And, you know, like I think about 
so I'm sort of in this hybrid role where we're like, we're trying to build Simply, but I don't feel like I've gotten into a place where I can raise money for that business because I mm-hmm. still don't feel like we've really figured out enough about um, our marketing model. You know, how right. much can we spend to feel pretty confident we're going to get a customer and how much will that customer buy over time? We're not and there yet. To me, that is um, what I've learned. That is foundational when you are looking to raise uh true capital like when you are looking to raise institutional investments or like proper venture capitalist money not just you know mom and dad chipping in uncles aunts friends giving you you know ten thousand dollars uh when you're doing a funding round the question is what does this money create will it make your business grow show me how and often it's a for every one hundred dollars in ads we know that we create $101 of revenue. Uh, if yes, give me all your money and we'll turn it into all, you know, and that's oversimplified. But I think that you're right based on what I've seen in my my small, short stint in startups and, yes. and venture. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so that can be... You know, the only way to figure that out is to test and test, you know, test different right. marketing channels, right? And 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 sometimes you find a channel that you think is good, but it's too small. You can't put enough money into it, right? And and to make that a very clear sort of micro example, we have some blogs that we work with um, where we get a lot of exposure, um, but for that specific blog, that's well, I can't scale beyond where it is, right? right. So it's like. You, you think you're onto it. You're like, oh, it's blogs, right? But then we try with others and it's not as successful. So it is a lengthy process. Um, having run an angel investor group and, and worked on the investment side, I, you know, I know like how challenging it can be to raise money in the first place and how much easier it can be if that story is locked in place where you're going to oh, investors man. and saying, I'm not asking for your investment dollars to learn. Mm-hmm. I've already learned. I'm asking for your investment dollars so I can scale this thing, and all of all of your investment dollars are going into that rocket ship that we now know how to build, and 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 we're not there yet, and that's okay because it just it it can take a lot of time to figure out, um, and I feel good about the steps we're, we're taking. So you know, even in that, like I'm not as headlong into this business perhaps as I would have been, you know. 10, 15 years ago, mm-hmm. because it's just not a process. It's just a, it's a methodical process I'm trying to work. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, just to maybe answering your question, stepping back and you know, maybe this is interesting to, to some of your listeners, you know, so I've talked, like I said, I mean, I've talked to some companies about consulting. I've even talked to some companies about stepping back into the, you know, into some full-time roles. And when I'm looking at those kinds of companies, and going through an interview process, um, you know, I might get really excited about the product, but then it's really being more mindful of what is this interview process like for me? Mm. Um, and not just like, do I, am I building rapport with the people I'm interviewing with, but do I like the way they're communicating with me, right? Like, is this, do we have communication, then it drops off, and then there's communication one day, and then it's rushed, and then it's like, because there's something culturally happening inside that company that's mm. influencing that process, right? And so there's just a lot more to examine to say, do I think this company has a culture in place that 
that I want to be part of. And then I think when you're looking like, so, so this is how I'm talking about opportunity. When you're, when I'm talking to some of these companies and they're saying, okay, this is the role, you know, it's, it's asking questions like, great. Um, some things are obvious, but like, we don't always think to ask, uh, ask them, how are you going to measure success? Mm. Right. How, how will I know if I'm succeeding in this role? Right. Or here's this description of what you're telling me this job is, but yet I'm talking to you and you're telling me these are the things that matter, but this is the description. And so do these things actually matter? What am I going to be evaluated on? Right. And then why might this, what's the most challenging thing for this role to succeed? Right. Mm -hmm. And, or like, what's the most challenging things for your company? Like what's right. Just really trying to ask, get a more holistic picture of is the culture right? Is the opportunity right? Um, you know, all of those things are going to matter for someone's success. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you could probably apply those things similarly to like my own business as an entrepreneur and, and ask a similar set of questions. Yeah. But I think it's really a mindset of just, it's not just, I mean, this is what investors do, right? And so it's like, but this is, I think we often discount these things when we're going after something that's bright and shiny. We just look to, we don't ask the, well, like, what if this isn't working out perfectly questions, right? Or like, do I, is this person going to be a good boss? Or is this investor going to be someone I actually want to get married to because I'm going to be talking to this man or woman for like the next 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's having a, like a sort of a, a wider aperture um, when you're examining any kind of opportunity um, and not just letting like the passion for it have you running headlong into things. Wow. I think that's uh, beautiful. And I, I can draw the parallel to assessing just a market opportunity versus a, a role in a business. Um, and one of the questions that's coming up that's adjacent is you've now been in media or, uh, this might be oversimplified, but you've been in media, you've been in um, uh, retail, you've been in venture-backed, high-growth, high-expectations business, and you've been now in production manufacturing. Of the, the I'm seeing four fingers after I count that out. Uh, of those four, does production and manufacturing give you the most... Um, I don't say warm fuzzies and excitement right now, or is that just like a, a, a space that you hadn't touched yet and you wanted to know what it felt like to run a product business? Dude, are you like in my brain? This is, <laughs> um, that is such a good question. Uh, and I'm not sure exactly where I come out on it yet because okay. I definitely wanted to do it. I definitely wanted to, to be able to kind of check a box that says, I have made my own product, mm -hmm. right? Like, I've been a retailer. I really want to make my own product. I think what I've learned as I'm talking about trying to find, you know, not only that product market fit to use some of the sort of parlance of the, the startup world, but, but trying to build that scalable business model when I started thinking about this three or four years ago, it seemed to me the, we may have talked about this when we had coffee, but it seemed to me the moment was so ripe and opportune for, 
for having your own product in market. We saw like American Giant and like just having mm -hmm. one sweatshirt, right? And how mm -hmm. like that business went crazy just selling a sweatshirt. And because there were so many ways to and 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 affordable channels to get that word out, and you could go to Kickstarter and go from there. And but you know, three or four years later, it's a different landscape. Um, though so many of these channels are saturated, not by furniture companies, but by product companies who still have the attention of this of the editors that I might want to pitch a story to, right? Or um, um, you know. Yeah, kind of marking opportunity that we might want to go. So it's a the just it's still a great time to have your own product. It's just gotten so much more challenging and requires. I wouldn't even say more sophistication. I would just say more um, more like kind of what I talked about, just that testing approach, but also really making sure that you've done your research up front that to to feel so confident in the product that you're coming to market with. With all that said, I don't know, you know, I, so I don't know if it's like, well, okay, I feel like I've done it. I do, I guess one thing I would say, having worked in tech, is that I am still drawn to whether, to product and to companies that are actually making material objects. Yeah, It's just, I'm less excited about software than I am about like material objects. Sure. I, um, what your response has made me think of a couple things. One is the folks. Well, a so before I say them, uh, I think that you're absolutely right in saying that there's something uh, busier now than ever before in product specifically. I think that production has been like democratized in a meaningful way, where I can you know uh, drop ship and and. Uh, on-demand print about any t-shirt design that you could possibly want and theoretically start a, a Shopify site tomorrow. I've done it and, and sell a thing tomorrow and you know, your business is live. You have a business. Congrats. And what that allows for is that people who are very good marketers or advertisers, perhaps the better term, because they can identify a target audience, put, run ads, have a, you know, funnel and convert meaningfully, um, with repetition. So then I have these like ad first businesses that are um, maybe good, hard to say, hard to know where their ethics are. They're just really good at, at getting in front of a target audience and, and having the first two seconds of the video be shocking or, you know, the, the frozen uh, screen before the video starts have something uh, salacious, um, which makes me think of, uh, just literally the day that the pandemic started, I was at a marketing event in Asheville. Um, and, uh, this guy Benton, who is Benton crane is one of the, I think he's the CEO of, um, the ad company, marketing company, agency, creative business that has done all of the most incredible ads of products that you, you know, and love poopery purple uh mattress and these are you know millions or hundreds of millions of plays on youtube videos and the products also happen to absolutely destroy and my biggest takeaway from his keynote was the idea that um if you're in products and he argued any business the very first objective is that is to understand if there is a viable economic engine that you can build on 
and improve on by improving on your product and improving on your you know branding and your and your look and feel but like if the answer is no do not continue like don't don't let your passion lead you into uh you know a sand pit uh build the unit economics as early as you possibly can and that flies in the face of how i have historically always thought about a business which is have a thing that you love tell the story meaningfully find your tribe build a tribe and you'll always be supported and this guy's like run the ads day one (laughs) run the ads day one ugly you know however but you need to know if you can get cold traffic to convert um and it seems that you're background your history your experience is putting you somewhere smack dab in the middle where you also understand how important building that economic engine is i'm wondering are you in a place now where where if you don't fully understand how to scale your customer base with cold traffic and ads uh, you don't necessarily need or want venture backing is that something that you're like hungry for um or or is that something that would be, you know, the language I've, I've heard is uh, the best time to stop for gas is when you don't need it. Like you become, uh, you'd pay for $5 a gallon if you're running on empty. Yeah. Um, you know, for us, um, we are, yeah, we, we want, you know, we're in business to build a, you know, to build a successful business. I can modulate how much we're, you know, we're spending. I can modulate, you know, we would be going faster. Um, we would have more product in market. That's the one part where the pandemic has slowed us down. And so, um, you know, I think you could find a lot of counter. I mean, of course you can. You can find a million kind of counters to that that notion, right? Like, sure. Um, I was just reading an interview with a woman who are one of the co-founders of, of health aid kombucha. Right. And mm. she, you know, she would probably tell you a very different story about how they've persevered and found their tribe and, you know, built a really nice business. Um, for us, you know, I think it's what I said too. like, no, I, I don't even honestly like know if I actually would want to raise investment money for this business. Um, I'm not sure that it's actually an appropriate business for venture capital. I mean, it doesn't, it just doesn't necessarily, you know, scale as quickly as, as the, the investor community would want. Sure. Um, and that, and it's not necessarily like that's the only financing that we could go get. Um, and so, and certainly I've been approached about other, you know, forms of financing, fi- financing our inventory, financing, you know, even like our marketing components, um, you know, I'm just not looking to take on capital until, well, let me put it this way. On the one hand, yeah, I'm rushing to build this business. But on the other hand, all my eggs aren't in the basket of this business, right? So um, I'm not going to you know, make decisions that I feel like are going to take on on more risk than, than the business requires. The other thing I would say, and I think my business partner, Christopher, who's our designer, would would agree with me, is that you know, there's just tons of satisfaction about getting something really awesome into the mm. market. Um, and I don't think either of us feels like we've hit, we've hit it on the, you know, the hit the home run yet, just in terms of the product. Um, we have huge fans of our product. We get reviews like this is artwork. This is functional art. Mm. We love that. But we also feel like 
you know, there's potentially a better material story to tell, like, you know, innovation around eco-friendly materials. Um, there's, you know, potentially a better design story to tell. So, you know, our kind of inspiration and motivation is m multifaceted, right? We still want to create these beautifully designed objects embedded with sustainability so that it's a no sacrifice product for customers. Mm -hmm. And I think we still feel that we can even get that like more right, more perfect, more ideal that it's almost like that we can create viral products because of the product itself. Mm. Um, I think that's also like a North Star for us, at least from a design philosophy. And so, you know, we're going to keep doing that. And, and it's, a, it's, and if we're not taking on other people's capital, we can afford to do it, right? We can, we can afford to do it. Yeah. And, uh, I asked that largely because I'm, I'm in a season in my life where I'm very not interested in like a venture backed high growth experience right now. I think there may be come a time and a place, um, and I, I was wondering what, what season you're in and what, what you're hungry for. Cause some people just, you know, love it. Like, and, and there are, to your point, many ways to bring capital into a business and it doesn't need to be with, you know, equity, uh, financing it can be debt. It can be a much, whole bunch of other vehicles. Um, so that's, that's helpful for me to get a sense of your world. I'm wondering when you think of the year ahead, 2021 for assembly what you know and I, I think we learned in 2020 that uh goals are as meaningful as the you know the exercise of setting a goal is and then you can probably throw the rest of it out but what, what are some of the goals what are the things you're thinking about in 2021 we're thinking about how quickly can we build um uh, our, our our product roadmap um we have just based on our initial sort of aesthetic, we have more tables coming for the home. We have coffee tables, we have kitchen tables. Um, we've got some really cool stuff coming that's been in the pipeline for a while. We have been talking to suppliers um, about um, moving into outdoor furniture and mm. taking recycled plastic from milk jugs and creating similarly like really beautiful flat pack furniture in a similar aesthetic to what we're doing right now. We see mm -hmm. that as a, as a, as a, you know, the opportunity to tell, like I said, a great material story, a great design story yeah. and go after a bigger market. Cause that could be a commercial market for us too. Wow. Yeah. And we are now working with a new prototyper on lighting and it's just like really innovative lighting that, um, um, kind of directs, I don't even know quite how to explain it, but it's like sort of directional lighting um, that doesn't actually, this is gonna sound weird, but doesn't even necessarily like rely on the light bulb itself to direct the light. I will leave it at that, which sounds sort of like Star Trek-y. Yeah. Um, but we think it could be like, the the designs are just so sweet. So. Oh. You know, we um, like I said, we, like we get super amped about the product, and we will keep testing to figure out, you know, do we have the right product for the right customer at the right value to to then go all in on the business or more in on the business. Wow. And um, so, 
A, that sounds exciting. I'm very excited to to, to be a fly on the wall and watch that uh, over the year ahead and years to come. Uh, B, simply, my guess was that it is a blending of simple assembly because your products flat pack, they build in like with a, with a little hex key, two seconds. There, or at least the table that we have, two seconds and it was done. And I built a lot of stuff for this office that was by orders of magnitude, the the simplest. Am I right, or is that just me, you know, trying to be a, a meaning finder? Yeah, that's exactly right. And um, the name was also made in Asheville. Mm. Um, I was working with one of our mentors um, at the Adventure Asheville's um, Elevate program. Um, this woman, Gay Lamb, who has um, an you know, and so she and she has an awesome business, and and she and her partner Brian have a um, a branding business on the side, wow. and um, yeah, she came up with it, and so like she had a list, and it was like simply, I'm like I like that, and she's like it's five letters, and she's and we're looking at it, and we're like, we think we might be able to get that dot com, yeah, which so is I mean, crazy, which is great. Did you buy it just like off the yeah. market? Someone had it? Yeah. No, no one yeah, had. I it. bought it. No, I bought it. I, I mean, I like acquired from GoDaddy from somebody like somebody but, was squatting on Simbly. Yeah, but it was like, like when we bought Vine, you know, yeah. when I was oh at kind of Amazon, that was like four hundred thousand dollars. When exactly. I bought yeah. when I bought Simbly, it was like several thousand dollars. Wow. And I was like, I can't believe that we're gonna have this, you know, this URL that aligns with yeah, this ethos around simple yeah. assembly. Yeah, because it seems like Simbly in year one would have like. Get Simbly, you know, build Simbly, live Simbly. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, that is people's workaround. Even when they come up with a, a great name or a uh, something, you have to throw a dot .io, dot .something. Um, maybe just for, just in case, do you have a, I have a pretty strong point of view on how to think about website names and domains do you have any meaningful tales to tell of uh, looking around? Like one of the things, for, for example, my my rule is that if you are thinking about buying a domain, do not Google to see if the domain exists. Go to like whois.com or whois.org, whatever it is. Whois lookup, go to GoDaddy, go to, not GoDaddy, because sometimes GoDaddy employees will buy domains they get searched for. Um, but like go to a domain lookup tool and look it up in the tool. Don't Google it. Yeah, that's probably like really good advice. I, I've never really been burned, so um, but that makes sense. You know, when we came out with Vivavi for my first furniture company, I couldn't think of a name, and I was actually um, my, our, my family's business is a sleepaway camp up in New Hampshire it's called Camp Wall Whitman. My brother runs it now, and so I was up there visiting, and like I couldn't think of a name for this business, and I'm like talking to the baker. And I'm like venting how I can't think. He's like, "What are you doing? What are you up to?" And then you know, and I'm like, "Oh, I'm trying to think." He's like, "Oh, you should talk to like I think it was his ex-wife. She's like, like my ex-wife. She's a linguist at BU and she names companies for a living." And I'm like, "All right, cool." So like, I talk to her and I tell her everything I'm trying to do and our values and our design and blah, blah. you know, she's like, "All right, give me a few days and I'll come back and like I'll you know with some names." And so she comes back with like five names, and four of them were just so hideous, like. <laughs> 
hip cool goods or you know like happy blah 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 you know it's just like awful and then there was this one at the bottom favavi right and i'm like oh what's this and she's and then she's like oh well, it's the derivation of vivir to live and uh, v is life blah, 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 you know like and i'm like huh i'm like i'll take it you know and so, <laughs> so she's like she's like okay so then i like got it and i was like yeah i do think it fits it sort of sounds vaguely italian like it's like happy you know but then I thought about it, I was like, I bet she puts that at the bottom of every list she gives to every customers because she can't find a sucker to like <laughs> to offload it on, you know? And she's always got like these four, you know, she's probably like a terrible, you know, namer, you know. But so anyway, that's how I, uh, but I lucked out. How interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's really interesting. I, uh, a friend of mine from New York, from college also, though, uh, he worked at some agency or another doing naming things specifically with cars and what i i'd never thought of it before but he's like you need to it's really important to have a car that every language can say or like that would you know work in in most every language of the world where like certain sounds don't work and so you have to cut all those out and like we're experts at naming cars i was like wow well there's the classic example of like the chevy nova right like nova doesn't go and it went to south america i mean it's like a classic business case on like don't do that yeah (laughs) (laughs) you build an agency just like we don't allow for that to happen that's amazing um okay so 2021 big year with um i guess my my last in the rear view question for you is um as you think about the ecosystem in Asheville, and this will transition us towards uh, a couple community-based questions, but as you think about like the startup ecosystem in Asheville, uh, you might be it might be a little too close to you because you you've been at the center of it for so long. How has it evolved in the seven years that you've been here, specifically in small business and supporting small businesses as opposed to the community at large? I guess the first way that I would answer that question, just given just from of course from my experience was when I stepped into that role as the director of Venture Asheville 2014, I think, April 2014, there had been a fair amount of activity here, of course, before I, I got here, um, trying to you know move that startup community along. Um, and um, there was an organization called Advantage West, which had done really good work, but it was starting to lose its funding. There were certain leaders in the in in the that were here that had really invested a, a lot of time. Um, folks like Trevor Lorbeer, who was instrumental in starting Meet the Geeks, which um, is an ongoing organization that's here. Um, but my my sense of the moment when I kind of showed up was that they were kind of a little bit tired of mm. those, those roles, and there just wasn't a ton of ongoing, there wasn't a ton of, of kind of the glue of building an ecosystem, an entrepreneurial ecosystem, is that people have to like, like smash into each other a lot. They have to mm. like see each other. They have to be able to like, you right, like bounce ideas off each other. They have to be able to meet investors and get to know those investors. So like when one day they might raise capital, those investors have actually know who they are and have seen them evolve and 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 that wasn't really happening we had had like a tedx Asheville. there had been i think a startup weekend 
Um, but I look at those things as like sort of like these, you know, it's like there are sort of these tent pole events. Like you need these event, like, you know, four of these hold up a tent, but you need all the other events to like fill in. Mm. And so one of the things we started really quickly was one million cups of coffee, Asheville. And so I just I had read about it actually before I moved to Asheville, this event where once a week entrepreneurs get up and present their business to a, a, a supportive room of people who are there just to frankly that be supportive and and kind of connect with each other um because i felt like we need some weekly interaction that's going to happen yeah in this case every single week and we need to we need to figure out more of these collisions it's probably a better better way to say it than like smashing into each other like we need more right and so what's changed is that with one million cups of coffee with the things that happen at hatch with you know all the programming that's scaled around mountain bizworks with organizations that I will, you know, will fail to mention here that I'll be remiss about. There are so many more people um, volunteering their time, stepping up as leaders, um, organizations stepping in than there were seven years ago. And that to me is, almost in its own right, that's the success story because, you know, a startup community and this is not an original idea. This guy, Brad Feld, who you may know of, oh, yeah. who actually wrote the book Startup Communities based on a lot of experience out in Boulder, you know, has emphasized, as have others, that a startup community really needs to be built by the people in the startup community. Like if it's ultimately being built just by like a director at Venture Asheville in a kind of a top-down way, the question really is, is how sustainable is that? if that role goes away as opposed right. to help. So we intentionally spent a lot of time trying to kind of seed things, sort of, we put us, you know, I worked on start the first, well, a start bringing back startup weekend as one of the, you know, within my first year or two in that role, but I didn't run it. I brought folks together who had the interest and got them together to lead it. Guys like mm-hmm. Chad Slagle, um, who has a really cool like whiskey business now here in town. Wow. Um, but that was really important to me was to see other people step up and have opportunities to evolve into leadership roles. And that I think is what's most heartening to me that we have something that's going to continue to grow and thrive. Love that. Uh, for the opposite side, what, what do you see after about a, you know, almost a decade, seven years, what's missing in specifically in that portion of the community in Asheville, uh, startup, small business, entrepreneurship at large, what do you think is missing? Well, again, it's like you said initially, um, you're going to separate out startups from small business. Mm -hmm. So I think it it depends if you're asking what's missing. I know I'm shifting here a little bit. The question is, what's what's the goal? Right. Mm. Like so if the goal is to have a thriving local business community, um, you know, that's diverse, that's, you know, inclusive. I think we're, we're, of course, you know, no community is perfect, um, but I think you see a lot of great progress in that regard happening mm-hmm. in Asheville. I think there's act for small businesses. I think there's relatively good, you know, access to capital. Of course, entrepreneurs will always say they can't get capital, but I do like we're talking about today. I do think businesses that are primed for capital and have done a lot of the grunt work can get, you know, usually can get capital and even startups, you know, high growth things that say they can't raise money. I, I tend to think it's 
not the investor community's fault that they can't raise money. Mm-hmm. But that's a philosophical thing. I think on the um, you know on the cultural side, one thing that's great about Asheville. And one thing you really need to build startups is like, you actually want a culture that is um, weird. Like, that's good. That like, Asheville, you know, is like a weird place. Because there's a a book called The Rainforest. I forget the authors, but they're also VCs out in San Francisco and help communities grow. I think one of them lives here in Western North Carolina. Wow. Um, Vincent Chu, maybe. I I can't think of his last name. But one of the premises of that book is like, to like sort of quote like do startups like doing startups building startups like build is not like industrial agriculture you can't just like lay perfectly like you know straight rows and like expect like the startups to be like the crops and just like spring up because like what like the crops are actually like the startups that actually succeed are like the weeds like the weird looking things that you can't identify right like that's actually like the thing that might be a huge startup. It will never be the thing that's just like easy to understand in a row, like identifiable right away, because that's not disruptive. That's not like, it's not right. And so it's like a totally different approach wow. to the culture you need in place. Like you need a rainforest, not like an industrial agriculture farm. And Asheville has that. The thing that I've wondered about, and I don't know if it's changed because I've been, you know, somewhat removed, focused on on my own ventures, is that, you know, coming from like New York and San Francisco and L.A. Um, and just being raised in New York, I think the 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 thing that frustrated me the most was like just generally sort of the pace that this city moves at. Now that could be just a southern thing, or that could be an Asheville thing, but. I would talk to entrepreneurs, and I get it, who were like saying, like, no, I'm building this high growth startup. You got to help me raise money, and I'm, you know, and they're like, but it's like Wednesday, and that's like my mountain biking day, you know. And it's like, okay, man, I'm happy for you to have a mountain biking day. That's a dream for so many people, but that might be in conflict with some of your other goals for your startup, right? And so I think, you know. I don't know. I don't know if that should change for Asheville. I don't know if it's like, but I, but I do think it's there's a disconnect between striving to build like super high growth startups that could, you know, exit for a hundred million dollars and up, and that like culture that we have here, which might be getting in the way of that. And I, I think that's fair. One of the things that even you know we're eighty, we're in our eighties of episodes at this point, and I. I am looking for folks around who are trying to grow hundreds of million dollar businesses. I know that they're here. I've met a couple, but like, I don't, I think most of the people that we're talking to are, you know, building six figure businesses and might, you know, might build seven figure business. But it, it, one of the things that I, and I want to, you know, respect our time, but like one of the things that I, was i want to say envious of perhaps is the proximity with which it, at certain points in your career you worked closely with people who seemed to just like think about hundred million dollar opportunities or billion dollar opportunities and just how proximity to people who think in that way you don't need to, you don't need to then try for the same you know target but it just it's how does that not change your perspective? It has to. 
And so I believe firmly in the, you know, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And I am, you know, excited about who we get to spend, Sarah and I, my wife, uh, get to spend time with in Asheville. It's made us better. It's made our business grow faster. It's made our our visions for what's possible and like the lifestyle plus the success financially that you could have. But when I was in New York, I was a lot closer to people who were trying to be billionaires um, and hundreds of millionaires than or or at least be a part of businesses that were looking to be hundred millionaires um, and own some percentage of that when they exit. And I, I'm eager to meet some people who are working on like generational wealth projects, uh, life, you know, life changing for everyone who's in the company projects. And I, that's one of the things that I don't think Asheville necessarily needs more businesses like that, but that's something that I wouldn't mind being adjacent to if only to, I don't know, uh, draft off of that kind of energy and, and just observe if does that is that soul crushing or is it exciting like what does that look like yeah you know it's it's a great point and and that's again why i think it goes back to what's the goal um Mm. and you know at venture Asheville, um and then when i went to the collider to lead the collider we were thinking can we build you know high growth these high growth engines these high growth startups because you can accelerate um potentially job job growth but also exactly, wealth creation yeah. right and 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 you certainly you know we feel like i still feel like for Asheville, you need that component as part of a, a healthy diversified economy i think that um you know there are some structural challenges um that uh that make it challenging you know well structural challenges of course they make it challenging but one like we don't have a research university here now people i've had this debate with folks in the roles I've had in Asheville where they've said, well, we have this, we have this. It's like, we don't have a research university. We don't have patents being created here. It's mm-hmm. very difficult. In fact, I'm not sure I could find an example in the world of a city that has you know, created tons of amazing startups without having a lot of patents in that city coming out of universities and research uh-huh. centers. We simply don't, right? We don't have, um, we don't even graduate a lot of software engineers. Yeah right? Like it's really limited. So you have those things already in place where it's like, you know, all right, well, let's just, you know, let's see how many hands we're going to tie behind our back and go try to do this. Now we do have things that draw a lot of talent here, right? Like incredible quality of life for, for starters, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the things I used to do at LinkedIn or at LinkedIn at Venture Asheville, when I was building our, you know, either recruiting investors or recruiting mentors, I would just look on LinkedIn, right, and just search Asheville Facebook, Asheville Twitter, Asheville, like, all these, like, the TechCrunch 50 companies, Asheville, like, Mm -hmm. I'd run all these searches to say, like, who's moved here? Because people are constantly moving here with these sick backgrounds. Or I'd type in, like, Asheville Austin, Asheville San Francisco, Asheville, like, or the top NBA programs, or whatever it was, and I'd, like, and ended up, like, recruiting this, like, I thought pretty incredible base of mentors who um, didn't know each other who were like, they're like, how, why did six of us have like Harvard MBAs? That's weird. And it's like, yeah, that's like, right. And it's not like as weird as you think it is because I'm trying to like bring resources to our entrepreneurs who they can't access on their own. Okay. So part of my thought process in starting that mentor program was um, we're going to bring these really bright minds, successful people who have moved to Asheville. um, We're going to kind of pull them into the ecosystem, 
have them start working with our startups. Our startups will benefit from their knowledge. And maybe there'll be some other dynamics. Maybe some of these, uh, these folks will jump onto one of these teams, right? And then mm-hmm. you have a stronger co-founding team. Or maybe once all these folks start meeting each other, they'll form some teams. And then you'll just get like an A team of like amazing people who move naturally, mm-hmm. they're gonna work some. This is my speculation, but it's something that kind of I've encountered routinely is that generally speaking, that person who's worked for Facebook who's moved here, right? Or that person who's working for Intel who is here or whatever, you know, name an awesome company, right? They moved here. They didn't even move to like Raleigh, right? Like they're not looking for like their next, like I'm going to work my ass off startup and be in a company 60 to 70 hours a week and build a rock ship. Like they moved to Asheville to not do that, mm. right? So like they bring this wealth of experience and probably maybe even their job with them, but it's not like they're saying, hey, plug me into that Asheville startup community, necessarily, as a rule, right? right they're not necessarily right. saying like, I want to get involved. I see there's activity. I want to do something here. This would be great. I want to build a startup from Asheville. Like, like, you know, there's a thesis that says that, that's what will happen. But the evidence that I've seen is that's not necessarily how it goes. And so until there's enough kind of like momentum and excitement, I think kind of churning up from like what's here where some of those folks saying like, whoa, actually, you know what? Like instead of me just sitting in my awesome home working for my startup in Austin, actually, let me go down to one million cups of coffee or let me show up at that event. Like, you know, the, the potential exists, but it's not being realized. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one more one more. Th- different point I, I would just make kind of just in my um, observations. Um, there was a study that came out from the Kauffman Foundation, which is the largest foundation in America that looks at supporting entrepreneurship, um, that was looking, did a case study, I think on Chattanooga, of and Chattanooga, a little bit bigger than Asheville, but a, a much bigger uh, startup success story. Yeah. Um, also kind of a lifestyle town, though. Um, on what were the kind of top five things that we see as a case study that others might replicate. I don't remember all of them and I don't remember thinking that they were all replicable. I think sometimes like success sort of, you know, attributes are unique to a place. And Mm -hmm. I, I thought, I can't remember exactly what it was, but anyway, it doesn't matter, but they had things that I, I didn't think were necessarily transferable. Except one thing that they talked about that I'm now seeing like happen in Miami in a huge way in other cities is they talked about you need your city leadership and really like your mayor to be an extremely vocal proponent of startups, Mm. not small business, not entrepreneurship, startups. Now, a mayor can't necessarily just legislate on their own by his or herself, right? Like in different cities are structured, but cities that succeed have um, have mayors who show up at startup events, have mayors mm. who talk about startups, have mayors that talk about the doors are open here with welcome arms, bring your VCs, bring the best fountain, we want you all here. And they speak the language of startups. Wow. I have a lot of respect for our mayor, but she doesn't do that. Mm. Um, you know, occasionally she'll, but, but it's not in her to do it. The mayor of Miami just yes, announced an entrepreneur yeah. in residence, like a venture capital in residence for the city. You know, they've got like, he's texting people or tweeting, replying to tweets of like junior programmers who are like, I'm trying to look for a place for live. And he's like texting with them, right? It's yeah. like, he's all in on it. Yeah. And that 
you know, you that is cannot be underestimated how powerful that you know in itself can be. I think that is. Uh, I think it's a great insight. I look forward to finding that article. Um, and I'm wondering if you know all all. I can't remember what they say about families. I probably have it backwards. But all families, uh, all happy families are happy in their own unique ways, and all unhappy families are unhappy in the same ways. And I'm wondering if cities that are you know, high growth or successful are successful in their own unique ways. But I don't remember the other quote, so I probably shouldn't have said it. But um, that's, I think you're on to something. And I'm wondering, you know, what role making it in Asheville, our, what we're calling media company in 2021, as opposed to our podcast in 2020, what our little media company, uh, what role we get to play in, in helping tell some of the meaningful stories of not just small business owners and not just uh, the folks who are trying to build high growth businesses, but, you know, all, all of the different versions of self-employed uh, creators and community organizers. Like, what does it mean to be the place where those stories get told in, in cool ways? Um, I, I, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful for the for the future of this this little small city that punches way above its weight weight class. When you look at like who we get compared to, for being ninety thousand people who are here all the time to, um, you know, be be spoken about with million populations of a million or five hundred thousand, six hundred thousand in the same sentence is like kind of crazy. And so it's, it's it's to me it's like hard that Boulder is in the same conversation as Asheville when um you know it, it's both unfair and kind of cool <laughs> like that we're, we're being considered uh of that caliber uh, or potentially of that caliber well you're we're being considered uh, you know th- there's in a terms question of br- brand appeal right like yeah in terms of brand appeal and i remember when we were working on kind of the next i think it would have been was this 2015 we were working on the next kind of five-year economic development plan um, at the at the you know um, chamber and the our economic development organization, which I just remember in its own right being funny because it was like the only places I know that have like five year development plans are like Asheville and China, you know, like communist countries. But like, okay, cool. So let's work on this. And I remember the um, consultants. Um, so it shows you what I know about economic development because apparently like everyone <laughs> everyone has a five year plan. Um, but they were like, okay, you've arrived, right? You've arrived. And so by meaning arrived, you are now in the consideration set mm, yes. for talent and companies that are going to move somewhere with like, like you said, like every, just think of like what's currently a hip, cool city. And like, we're in that sort of, you know, that set of places that yeah. might mean we're competing against Nashville, certainly Boulder. But also Bend, Oregon, which is probably more comparable in size, but has that sort of mind share of mm-hmm. being like maybe a place I want to go, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think absolutely, you know, we're talking about things that are are missing from Asheville, but only we can only get to talk about those because you have a foundation that's already so high, so well mm-hmm. established. And entrepreneurs, you know, who are crushing it across of like a, a wider landscape than just like software right we have like inc- i mean anything yeah. i say is going to be incredibly obvious restaurants yeah. breweries right it's like i mean it's outdoor brands it's outdoor brands it's it's incredible the things you know when you think about opportunities to take advantage of i mean that's now what you're talking about i remember being in this meeting 
with um, some of the local leadership of GE Aviation. And just to think like GE Aviation is here, right? Like all these like, we have multi-billion dollar companies here. And so, but but the head of human resources um, for GE Aviation, who ended up going back to their headquarters in Cincinnati, um, you know, she said to, to those of us in the room, she was like, look, like Asheville has this incredibly unique opportunity because you're small enough for like everyone to know each other. Right? Mm-hmm. And in a certain sense, that's true, right? Like you're small enough for like everyone to know each other. And yet you're big enough for us to be here, right? Mm-hmm. For like GE Aviation to be in your community, right? And there's, you know, pl- plenty of other multinationals who are here as well and more on the way, which is awesome. Um, and so she's like, how do you take advantage of that strategically from an economic development point of view? Like, one, how do you tell that story? Because that's really appealing, right? Like, but what could be the the benefits of having a community like that? Um, where, so you get more of us and we're helping more of the younger, you know, or the, the smaller folks, you know, achieve their goals. And we're learning from like, what synergies could be created because you occupy a really interesting space that so many other cities, you know, just simply can't, occupy Mm -hmm. and um those go i think to the 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 potential that's still here that 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 leaders and others needs you know can tap into and can still work on well dang more questions than answers in in this episode and i I love it i uh again it leaves me feeling hopeful and inspired and um we will round out this episode with just a handful it's not speed round but it's uh it, these are questions that show up often. When I say the word Asheville and community, what do you think of? Prosperity. Mm. Um, we can leave it there. That is, uh, that's a great word association. With Asheville specifically, when you aren't uh, all in, head down on assembly, what do you find yourself getting into? Well, I still have this, you know, broader abiding passion for design and sustainability. So I'm still building the lazy environmentalist and and working on content and a content strategy to to capture a wider view of innovation in the market. So I get into that. And I also get into playing a lot of football with my 10-year-old, soon-to-be 11-year-old son. soccer with my daughters i mean this is one of the benefits the the bright sides of the pandemic is that mm-hmm. we you know fully taking advantage of this this time that we have together which will change at some point um we're very excited that that nascar season is starting up again it's oh, kind of really a, yeah wow so that's a little bit of a maybe an outlier for an environmentalist but we are big big nascar fans and a nascar family so i would not this podcast but i will have to talk nascar i that's fantastic i'm I'm a degree or two from some big nascar enthusiasts and some folks that work at nascar so i'd I'd love to hear more about that (laughs) yeah man we've i mean we've we're you know that i mean we're so well situated right we go up to bristol we go down the charlotte motor speedway we've been over to martinsville yeah we we're we're into it ah in fact, I connected probably a couple of years ago with, with some of the marketing folks at NASCAR because we also play fantasy NASCAR. 
where every week sure. we're predicting and picking our drivers and the order they're going to come we, in. you mean like your family is all um, in on this or your friends? We've all like, been, but no, right. me and my son, my oh, son, wow. Shep. Um, Shep actually really actually got the family into NASCAR and it mostly came out of the Cars movies. Oh, great um, movies, right? great movies, yeah. incredible. And so we became, by virtue probably of geography and um, his interests, we became a NASCAR family. Wow. And so he and I do fantasy NASCAR every every week. And I think it was two years ago, through, with like hundreds of thousands of people on NASCAR.com, right? And so the f- two weeks ago, after the first two weeks in the season, my son, who was then eight or nine, eight I want to say, was number one on NASCAR.com <laughs> in the world in fantasy. He had called the first two races top to bottom, like top five, stage one, stage two, and went, like he was number one. And so... That Monday morning, after like we saw the the ranking update, my wife's like, "You you gotta call somebody. Like he needs to get on like ESPN or like this is like this is amazing." So I found like some of the higher ups at NASCAR and I wrote him and I explained the situation. I'm like, "You got an eight year old, you know, who's like number one. This is his his name is the Crazy Fader is what he goes by, yeah. and." Uh, and I'm thinking, like, you know, I know you got this problem with like, like, age fans aging out of like NASCAR. You yeah. don't have like a lot of younger. So within like an hour, like two of them called me and they're like, "Tell me about Shep. You know, we got to get him on our podcast." We got so there's a video clip of him um, with um, Steve Latart. If you wow. I don't know how close you follow, but one of their um, announcers who runs like the weekly podcast. There's a video of Shep dressed up in his Kyle Busch, you know. <laughs> yellow uniform because that's favorite driver giving his picks for the upcoming week on yeah you know who folks should be looking at and why so it's pretty epic unbelievable i love that we unearthed that gem in the here the in the cheap seats of the episode unbelievable um all of my other questions are thrown out i need to immediately hop on the linkedin i think i know the ceo of nascar i, I gotta i gotta check he went. He might have went to my high school. If he's not the CEO, he's very, very, very senior, and this is a huge deal. So I will, I will make a connection immediately. Wow. Uh, if our listeners today would like to follow you, your story, uh, you simply and and more, where might they go on the World Wide Web or social media? So you can follow us. You you can see simply at simply.com. Um, you can also follow things more generally that I'm covering um, at lazyenvironmentalist.com. And, you know, through there, yeah, you know, you can find us on any social media channel. We're, we're, we're pretty much everywhere. I tend to do more of my personal posting on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we have Simbly's pretty active on Instagram and, and elsewhere as well. Amazing. Well, I cannot thank you enough for your time. I think that uh, the notes on this episode, show notes, will be available. All of the links uh, will be available. But I, there are, uh, there are very, very meaningful uh, nuggets that got unearthed. Not just that your son is the greatest NASCAR predictor of the early 2021 season of all time, uh, but, but just on what it is, how how to approach opportunity, how to approach business building and thinking about what the goal is before thinking about what the next step is. I, I again, cannot thank you enough. And I look forward to seeing you at a coffee shop in hopefully not the too distant future.
Thank you, Tony. Uh, you are a truly wonderful, insightful host. This was just a, it was a terrific conversation. I really appreciate it. We'll do it again soon. 